Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast, the latest on citrus research from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of the All In for Citrus podcast. I am your host, Taylor Hillman. We've got a great episode today, a little bit later on in the show. Uh, we, we've heard some news about uh, peptides and how they can possibly help growers down the road with the fight against HLB. We're going to talk to a professor later who actually is able to test these peptides in his system Um, We'll also get an update on the nutrition guide and some disease management updates as well. But as we start every episode, we start with Dr. Michael Rogers, Center Director um, for the Citrus Research and Education Center. Dr. Rogers, how are you? I'm doing good, Taylor. Thank you. Really good news. We got uh, national news that we saw come out. Uh, They made a top 10 list of universities and UF was in there, right? Uh, yes, this week we learned that for the uh, year 2021, uh, the U.S. News and World Report has ranked UF number six in public universities. And so that, that's really good news for us um, as we've, we've been striving to break into that top five ranking uh, nationally. How was how that list put together? What's the details behind that list? And, and, and what does it mean f- for you as, as a university? Um, you know, what does this mean to be able to be in that list? It's very reputable universities up there. Yeah, absolutely. And so the way that list is generated, there's a number of metrics that go into ranking universities. And um, a lot of these things like teaching and class size and things like that, um, for us, um, things that we focus on down here, in addition to teaching, research is really important. I know growers really focus on what we're doing in terms of research. So I think the importance and the impact of our research also plays into those rankings as well. So it's not just, you know, the, the value and, and the, the level of the undergraduate education, but there's a lot of other things. And, and so it recognizes the fact that we are doing a good job in terms of research. Why it's important for UF, um, you know, this is really more than just bragging rights. I know we all like to to brag here <laughs> on the Florida Gators at, during football season, but but you know, this this goes far beyond that because this really um, attracts a lot of opportunities for the university as others um, nationally recognize uh, the the stature and standing of the University of Florida. It, it really, along with that recognition, there comes a lot of new opportunities that we otherwise would not have. And recently, um, our new vice president, Dr. Angle uh, for IFAS, uh, has talked a little bit about our new initiative for artificial intelligence at the university. And that, that initiative really got jump-started because of a couple of donors, you know, recognizing the, the value and, and the importance of the research at UF uh, together provided about $50 million uh, that's gone towards a new supercomputer that's being uh, placed in Gainesville at, at the university. And what this is going to do, it's really jump-starting this whole artificial intelligence initiative. And this is this is important. You know, we wouldn't have this if, if we weren't, you know, demonstrated to be such a, a, a high-ranking university and, and they, there was the value to investing in, in UF. But, but it really has a lot of potential for our state, um, you know, not just uh, research, but, but all aspects of life. You know, we're going to be training the next generation of students, you know, in artificial intelligence that will help, you know, as, as they enter the workforce in Florida and, and, and bolster our economic development. But, but for us in agriculture, um, especially citrus research, 
you know, we, we've been really brainstorming all the different applications that we can use this for here in, in Citrus. And, you know, the list includes, it's a long list, but just some of the things that I think folks have heard us talk about, you know, precision, precision breeding and uh, crop improvement, um, refining, better refinement of grove management practices, improving pest and disease management. So the possibilities are really endless. And so now we're, we're you know, gearing up to um, put the creative minds of our faculty and also our students to work on this new initiative. That's uh, exciting to think about. And, and as you look at that list, too, you can see there's several uh, universities on there that, that are also focused on technological advances. So uh, you can see that that was, that was one of the uh, focuses here for this list, and that's good. Um, let's talk about the, the, the students and what they play a role in here. Um, I think people kind of underestimate how important the students are to the university and uh, to the research and to advancements. Um, and campus is back open and students are back on campus. H how important are they to this whole equation? Oh, yeah. Students are a very important part of our mission as a land grant at University of Florida. Um, I know everybody is pretty familiar with with the role that UF plays in undergrad education and and why it's important for those students, you know, to get their degrees and enter the workforce. But but I think probably less recognized is the importance of graduate students as well uh, in the student population at UF, because we attract some of the best and brightest graduate students, both um, from from within the U.S. and abroad. Uh, who bring creative minds uh, with them as they come to do their studies and also do research. And so a lot of these really bright next generation uh, scientists um, are doing their work here at UF and really helping us right now to uh, solve some of the problems that we're dealing with now. And they'll also be working on the future problems down the road. Yeah, very important part of that equation. Uh, nothing is free nowadays. Uh, how, how do we pay for these uh, uh, graduate students that come back and do some work for the industry? How, how do we keep them um, interested, coming up with projects and working on some of the problems we have? Yeah, so there's a number of, of ways that we uh, fund students to do their studies at, at UF. Um, and there's also a, a distinction here. You know, we have both students that are, you know, U.S. citizens, but we also have students from abroad as well, international students. And so there's some differences sometimes in how they're funded. In the case of international students, sometimes they may come to UF with funding from their home countries. You know, they may be funded on grant proposals to work on a specific project. Uh, so, you know, our Florida Citrus industry has been great pro providing funding uh, to help us cover those costs uh, for students to really be hands-on and involved in those projects and, and really taking ownership of some of those projects. And uh, we also have other, other sources of funding, like here at the, at the CREC in Lake Alfred. We have uh, two endowments that are set up. Um, one's the Hunt Brothers Endowment and the other is the Shin Endowment that we use for graduate students. And so we're able to bring in students who may not other who are really bright and very promising and provide them funding for their studies so then they can work on projects, whether it's a grant we already have in mind or maybe it's a new project. And that those kind of endowments where we have that flexibility are really, really ideal because I'll share an example um, from my former research project, uh, program. Uh, I recruited a student, uh, an international student uh, from Brazil who was really, really bright. And she was on one of these endowments. And so I gave her the flexibility to create a project. You know, the goal had to be you know, making advancements and managing uh, Asian citrusilid. She had a different way of thinking about things than I did. And her ideas at first, I, I kind of thought, well, this will never work. 
but I gave her some flexibility and ultimately um, it was a home run. And she really changed the focus and direction of my research program for the next decade based on that creativity and different way of thinking she brought to the program. So that's that's something that's that's really positive when we bring in students from outside is they, they bring a different way of thinking about things with them. Um, they're very bright. And so we really are able to advance the science uh, with our students. But it's also important because a lot of times in the case of some of our international students, um, after they're done, sometimes if they don't stay in the U.S., they return home to their to their home countries. But when they do so, we now have a collaborator uh overseas to work on, you know, projects. And I think in cases of things, if you look at something like HLB, that's been really important for us, where we've had former students in places like India and China, who we've been able to um, uh, connect with and do projects and, and get the background on how they manage and live with those diseases over there in those other countries before they arrive here in Florida or in the case of HLB, help us to not have to reinvent the wheel, but build upon what's already known about those problems. So um, those are just some examples. Um, and, and there's also other examples of endowments or, or support for graduate students, because I know a lot of growers really do understand the importance of, of grad student education. And, and um, just recently down in southwest Florida, the growers got together and pulled together funding to build a, a new dorm for grad students at the southwest Florida uh, Education Center in Immokalee. And so it's just another example of, of where how these grad students are supported by our industry and, and the importance they play um, in, in advancing the science of citrus production. That's a good success story of an endowment. We should do more of those stories. I think a lot of growers are familiar with those endowments, especially those bigger ones that you mentioned, uh, but may not know exactly where that funding goes. And, and this is what it does. This is a perfect example of it. It, it helps graduate students put work back into the industry. Yeah. And, and of course, it sets the stage for that those international collaborations down the road, which continue to pay off dividends for our industry in the future. Uh, even if it's not an endowment, you know, the growers can provide support to our students in a number of ways. And probably most important is uh, I know many growers see students out in their groves uh, doing working on research projects. And so I just encourage folks to welcome those students um, as they're there doing research. Uh, because they're all part of our team that's that's working here to advance citrus in, in the state of Florida. A good update, as always, when we do these episodes, uh, UF IFAS Citrus Research and Education Center Director, Dr. Michael Rogers. Dr. Rogers, thank you for your time. All right, thank you, Taylor. We're now joined by Associate Professor of Plant Pathology and Extension Specialist, Dr. Megan Dudney. Dr. Dudney, how are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. We're talking today about a couple topics, uh, the first of which is what I've talked to you in the past, and that is citrus black spot. Just wanted to get a quick update on um, research. Uh, anything new? Uh, how's research going? Are we looking at anything uh, coming up here? Well, I have an ongoing project courtesy of our funding agency, the Citrus Research and Development Foundation, who I want to thank for their generous support in, in researching black spot. And we are looking at a few questions with them. One of the things that we have probably the most recent results on is looking at a fungicide trial, looking to see what fungicides are working, how well they're working um, with this disease. We don't have a huge amount of experience here with it in Florida. And when running a trial for black spot, uh, it's important to have enough disease to really be able to see differences amongst treatments. So we've struggled over the years to find good spots for it. So we had a reasonable 
location last year, and I worked with uh, Dr. Osgur Bataman from uh, our Southwest Florida REC. Um, he and I worked on this project together, uh, and we looked at black spot in a 20-year-old Valencia Grove, and we uh, did a pre-evaluation for black spot uh, just so that we could calibrate our disease uh, levels amongst the treatments, um, and then we used that information to then plot out our trials. Uh, we looked at 10 treatments, and we looked at a newer product called uh, Moravis, uh, and then uh, Moravis Top, which was a combination product, and these are Moravis is in the X class of SDHI fungicides, so it's a little bit different than some of the other fungicides we've had in the past, and then it it was mixed in a premix with uh, diphenaconazole, which is a which is a DMI fungicide, um, which we've had good results in black spot in the past. And the nice thing about that particular combination is that we have got a lot of products on the market for disease control and citrus in general for fungicides, where they are all premixed with estrobularin fungicides. Estrobularin fungicides are great until they're no longer functional because they have resistance. They're very effective, but they develop resistance very quickly. Uh, so it was nice to have a premix being introduced by a company um, without that. And then we looked at Enable, which is an old DMI fungicide, which had reported good results in the past. We want to confirm that. Uh, then we looked at Amistar Top, which is the diphenaconazole that I talked about just a moment ago mixed with azoxystrobin, and we rotated that with a copper. In this case, I used COSI 3000. So copper is a nice um, protectant fungicide that will keep the fruit protected uh, once it is grown to a certain size, but it tends to wash off over time and it needs to be in place uh, prior to an infection event. Then we looked at uh, a product called Luna Sensation, which is a strobularin product mixed with another SDHI. We looked at Luna Experience, which is, again, an SDHI, but then this time it was mixed with a, uh, a DMI fungicide called Tebuconazole, which unfortunately is not registered for the citrus market, but we were, had seen good results in, in uh, papers from places like Brazil in the past and thought it was worth trying. Uh, we looked at another product called PHD, which is a polyoxin zinc salt which has got a very different mode of action from anything else that we have registered. And we rotated that with copper again, the same one, COSI 3000. Looked at a, another SDHI mixture with estrobularin known as Preaxor, which is relatively new, it was registered a couple of years ago. And then I looked at Headline, which is a very solid estrobularin uh, product uh, and rotated that with COSI 3000. And everything was compared to an untreated control. Good news is that just about everything performed better than the untreated control, with the exception of the one product known as Moravis Top. And the, I think the reason for that is that we had a lot more disease in the Moravis Top than we did in the other products. Um, and looking at that, just about everything else, though, had far better uh, disease management than the uh, untreated control. That means that probably the growers are able to select just about anything that we have registered that will, and they will all, all manage um, black spot pretty well. And then we saw the same result looking at the number of dropped fruit that majority of the, uh, of the treatments had um, 
a reduction in the number of dropped fruit uh, as well. So that's an important part of black spot management is to making sure that the fruit stay on the tree. The more disease you have, the fewer fruit will, will remain on the tree. That's good. That's a it's a very in-depth study. It sounds like testing most, multiple products. And, and even when you do have ones that aren't necessarily registered for citrus, it is nice to put include those in the studies and get the locality you're talking about too, because you may have some resistance uh, in Florida that you may not have somewhere else looking at these products. And so this sounds like a, a really well-developed research project and uh, that's exciting information for growers there. Also, we're talking today about the um, uh, new citrus production guide. Uh, there are some updates on this, uh, and uh, you guys update this every year, but there are, there are some good updates for the, this year, correct? Uh, yeah, so we, uh, myself and doctors uh, Fischeth and Diepenbrock, uh, we are the co-editors of the citrus production guide, and so we update our, ch- our respective chapter areas. Uh, so I'm in charge of the plant pathology chapters as editor, but um, Dr. Diepenbrock, Lauren Diepenbrock is a uh, is in charge of the entomology, and then Dr. Tripti Vishith is um, in charge of the horticultural side of management. And we do have a couple chapters that had some relatively large changes in the last year. Uh, particularly the citrus canker one, we, we removed information sort of that was much more uh, useful back in the day when we only had isolated locations that had citrus canker. So we removed all the information about defoliation and trying to prune out um, out canker. So we're no longer making that kind of recommendation for growers. I don't think anyone was using that anymore. In the last three years, we had added uh, another option for managing canker and that's looking at the product blockade using it as a plant defense stimulator to try and enhance your management with copper for canker and so the details are are still in the in the guide uh we've tried to expand them and and sort of over the last couple years um refine them a little bit so those are the big changes in the canker chapter there was also the group the virus group headed by doctors bottoman and levy they have done some updates in our in our Tristeza chapter, um, just sort of streamlining the language, removing anything that is no is outdated in that chapter as well. So we're really trying to modernize these chapters in in the in the guide, try and keep up with the uh, changes. We of course did a lot of housekeeping um, every year. We've got to go through. We've got to look at things like the links and all of that stuff to make sure that they're still all functional. It's amazing how often uh, websites change. So if growers do find that there is a, links that are, are no longer viable and they want to try and get to something, please contact us so that we know that there's trouble and we, we can help repair that at least online, if not in the print version. And we've, of course, have updated the last chapter, that big, big table that many people uh, refer to. We had a survey last year at Expo um, and we wanted to know or the information we wanted to know from growers and other users of that last chapter was whether they were happy with the layout and the information that we're providing in there. And uh, the results that we got from the survey were that, in general, most people were quite happy about it. The one thing they were interested in having was some sort of a, an online version of that or perhaps an app. And we had been exploring trying to do something like that, but then we we got caught up with COVID and weren't able to to pursue that as uh, as much as we might like to. So I think uh, we'll probably retake take a 
look at that again in the near future to try and uh, get going back on that project. And hopefully in the next year or two, we'll have some viable changes in that respect. Good. That sounds like uh, a lot of good updates this year for the 2020-2021 Florida Citrus Production Guide. Uh, it's got to be hard to come up with uh, actual changes. There's there's quite the process you guys have to go through to be able to put in recommendations for growers. You you it needs to be backed by extensive research for you to be able to make these changes in the production guide, right? Yeah, there um there's a, there's a process that we follow um, that we've agreed upon to uh, put a product into the actual recommends. So at the end of most chapters, for example, like the Black Spot chapter that, uh, that I, I'm the lead author on, to get products into the guide, into that last t- table uh, as recommended products, there's lots of registered products, not all are recommended. For us to recommend them, they need to be gone through, go through at least two years worth of field research uh, by a reputable entity uh, that could be a private contractor or it could be somebody in, within IFAS is doing two years worth of good field work. And then the data would come to me along with a proposed change to the, the chapter. Um, I would review it with the person who's proposing the change. Sometimes that's myself. Sometimes that's another scientist. We review the data. We talk about what changes are going to go through. Um, then if I decide right there that the data is of high, sufficient quality and I have yet to refuse a data set yet, but you never know. Then I will put the data together in a package that goes out to vote to all the pathologists um, to vote on whether they feel that the changes in the chapter are, are uh, worthy uh, of ending up as a recommend. And uh, I've had a couple products where they were people had asked for additional information or no, I really don't think that needs to go in the way you know, they've asked for changes, uh, but on the most part, you know, provided that the data is clear and the case is made well, uh, we're able to get then a, a new product in as a recommendation. But it isn't just an automatic, oh, um, we've got a new product registered. We'd like you to put it in the guide under, you know, post fruit drop. It's not that easy. You do need to go through a process of, of some sort of independent testing uh, to make sure because we want people to come to trust data from IFAS as an independent arbiter of, of what is what we say actually works, works, and not just um, not just a list of basically the, anything that's registered. I agree. That's good information and a good thing to point out. Uh, again, uh, Associate Professor, Plant Pathology and Extension Specialist at UF IFAS, uh, Dr. Megan Dudney, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. You can find the Florida Citrus Production Guide at the UF IFAS website. Easiest way to do it is just Google search Florida Citrus Production Guide. We're now joined by Dr. Choa El Amatar, a research assistant scientist of plant pathology at UF IFAS. Thank you for joining us, first of all. Thank you for having me. We're talking about some really interesting um, research and what you're able to do um, in your lab. Uh, and we'll kind of break it down so people can understand how this works. But, uh, you know, we've had a lot of recent news, the possibility of exciting news with some new peptides being found that, you know, may be able to help out with HLB disease. But you have the basis here to be able to test out those things. Um, and and that's that's what you're doing in your lab. So let's let's start there and explain the process. 
um, you guys are able to introduce things to citrus trees to be able to see if it has an outcome. And by doing that, you use the citrus tristeza virus um, to do that, correct? Yeah. Our citrus tristeza virus or CTV is our platform to express sequences of interest or therapeutics in citrus against HLB or any other potential pest pathogen. So why not use just a CRISPR technology or uh, how does this vary from GMO? This is the virus doesn't integrate into the genome, so it only expresses as the virus replicates and moves, and it only expresses in specific tissues that are infected by the virus, in which the virus is present. In terms of GMOs, you need to produce GMOs for the next generation of plants, and that may vary depending on the citrus variety and uh, cultivar. It may take anywhere between 10 to 20 years depending how much is its juvenile stage, how much it's recalcitrant for transformation, all these play a role. What we do with CTV, we go infect one citrus host, and then we can graft transmit it among the different cultivars. And by that way, we don't need to go through juvenility uh, again and maturity and tissue, tissue transform, uh, not tissue transformation screening for horticultural characteristics. So all these are avoided. You go into the mature plant in a way and test the effect of what you have in the citrus plant. And it is for the current generation of plants, not for the next generation of plants. So it should be a, a lot quicker than some of those, like you talked about, 10, 20 years. Uh, this would be a lot quicker to be able to test things in these plants. Yes, it is much, much quicker. I mean, you can produce a transgenic plant in almost the same time that you need to get citrus uh, CTV into citrus. But the difference is is that you avoid the juvenility and you can graft transmit it between the different citrus genotypes. As long as the CTV or the virus vector that we're using go into those citrus genotypes. So as we've just heard about, um, and we've we've there's been other ones over the years too, but the most recent uh, news was the uh, peptide that was isolated from the Australian finger limes. So if someone finds a peptide like that or something uh, that can positively influence the tree or affect the tree, um, then you use those and introduce it to the tree to see what it does with the CTV. That, that is true. I mean, we have collaborations for introducing. One aspect of our collaboration is expressing antimicrobial peptide through the CTV vector. We express them in citrus seedlings and then infect them with the HLB bacteria through the Asian citrus cellid insect vector. And then we wait one to two years and screen the phenotype that comes out of these plants. So that way we are able to, to detect which ones have an effect and which ones do not have an effect. Well, that's pretty exciting to uh, be able to, to test that. So over the years, as you have done this, um, are there specific um, developments that you guys have, have, have been able to 
to incorporate into plants? Are there specific ones that, that have been, aside from the one you just mentioned, but are there specific ones that have had a big impact that you've been able to do this way? What we have done is we have screened a lot of antimicrobial peptides since we are speaking about antimicrobial peptides. In general, we have identified few that induce tolerance to HLB. For example, the HLB bacteria will be present in the plant, but the plant will continue to grow. The seedling will continue to grow versus if you put no antimicrobial peptide, the seedling will collapse and like it will die, stop growing. So we have identified some antimicrobial peptides that when expressed through the CTV vector help the tree tolerate the HLB. So what's the next step after you after you're able to identify um, these antimicrobial peptides? When you're able to identify it or a few of these, what's the next step? How what where does it go from there? Do we look at trying to figure out a way for growers to use it? In that aspect, like the CTV technology is licensed to Southern Garden Citrus Nursery. Uh, so there is uh, the patent is belongs to the University of Florida, and the University of Florida has licensed the use or for the Southern Garden Citrus Nursery to use it uh, to express CTV. And Southern Garden is pursuing permits to be able to use it uh, in the field. In fact, recently they got a permit issued from uh, through the USDA to do large-scale field experiments, which are like the 500 to 530,000 acres of field tests in Florida in all counties, in all uh, geographical locations. So in that aspect, this, this is in parallel of what we do research. Southern Garden is trying to, to use, to, to get permits and permissions to use the CTV vector in the field. And that's how it will reach the farmers in general, for the farmer, it will not be a an extra cost. It will be a cost that it will be in the seedling that he buys. In general, the idea would be to introduce it into mother trees. And from mother trees, it will be uh, when you take the buds to graft into the rootstock for it to be grown in the field, that mother tree will have the CTV vector. It will be in the trees for the time they grow and protects them from HLB. That's exciting. I, I know, you know, once you get to the point to where you need to test this on a wide scale uh, in the field rather than just in the lab, that can be a little bit of a challenge. But having Southern Garden Citrus uh, being able to help out with it, that's exciting. So, so I mean, relatively speaking, um, you know, growers could see this pretty soon. I mean, uh, hopefully, I mean, the CTV technology will be applied in the field with the right uh, therapeutic, and that way it will provide protection for the for the growing citrus trees in uh, in the field, and that will be very exciting for for us as a research group that has been working on this to see something go into the farmer's hand that is useful and helpful. Well, that's the ultimate goal, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Research Assistant Scientist at UF IFAS, Dr. Chaa El Matar. Thank you again for your time. Thank you. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the All In for Citrus podcast. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to this month's All In for Citrus podcast from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network.